You can uh, get a Bible in your uh, hands and open it up. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now with copies of the Bible. If you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. We're continuing in our Summer in the Psalms series, but before we jump into the book of Psalms, I want to ask you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. You know, you probably did it uh, sometime where you, you went to Google to find a to find a script or to find a template. Maybe you were giving a speech at a wedding and you didn't really know what to say, so you, you looked one up. You wanted someone to help you. You wanted to look at what someone else said. Or maybe you needed to write a cover letter for a resume because you were applying for a job. And so you, you Google, you try to find a template. You try to find an example, of something to follow. And the, the book of Psalms is kind of like that. There's all of these moments that we go through in our lives and sometimes we don't know what to say. We don't know how to put into words what we're feeling. We don't know how to say the things that are right and appropriate in that moment. And so believers at different times are filled with joy and we don't even know it. it's inexpressible joy and the Psalms give us a script, a, a way to, to express that joy to, uh, to God. Sometimes we're filled with fear. Sometimes we feel like the walls are closing in around us and we're in a battle that we can't win and, and the Psalms give us a template of how to talk to God in those moments. Sometimes we're filled with depression or sorrow or we're grieving and and the Psalms, don't they? They, they, give us, they give us words. They give us an example. Someone else went through this and they wrote this psalm and now I can read it and their words can become my words as the Spirit works in my life. Well, the psalm we're going to study today is a psalm that gives us words and that, that gives us a, a perspective on what to do when we sin. And what to do when we sin in a catastrophic way. When we're so overwhelmed with sorrow and grief as a result of something that we have done in sinning against God. Psalm 51 is going to help us. It's going to give us words. It's going to give us a script to say what needs to be said in those kinds of moments. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David experiences just one of those moments. And so we're going to begin with the story that led to, led to the psalm. And it's important that we pay attention to the story here because when it comes to sinning, whether in a, a small way or a catastrophic way, that tends to be more from a human perspective, not from God's perspective, but when it comes to sinning, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And so Psalm 51 is a, is a script, is a template that we should keep close to us, that we should be familiar with so that we would be able to say what needs to be said in those moments. So 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1 says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. Let's just stop right there for a minute. Some of us know the story of 
2 Samuel chapter 11. You know what is going to happen. Listen, what is so shocking about this story is that it started with nothing. It doesn't even sound like a Bible verse. He got up from his couch. But, but David was not, he was not living on mission. He was not fulfilling the purpose that, that was required of him. He was a king. It was the time when kings go out to battle. And instead, he stayed on his couch. And rather than doing what he was called to do, commanded to do, what was required of him based off his position... That led to all kinds of problems. But it's so, it's so innocuous as it begins. He got up off his couch. What could possibly go wrong? It says, and as he was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So David immediately averted his eyes and went back and sat on his couch. That's how the story could have ended. That's how the story should have ended. David found himself uh, tempted uh, sexually. It, 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 it was difficult for David to avoid. It's difficult for us to avoid sexual temptation, all kinds of temptation. Martin Luther famously said, you can't stop birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. David, listen, that's what could have happened. That's what should have happened. A tempting scenario, you immediately look away, but that's not what David did. Verse 3, David sent and inquired about the woman. Now, not all of us are kings, so we wouldn't have the opportunity to go send a messenger to inquire about a potential temptation. But when we linger in that moment, when we take the second look, when we contemplate what may come next, that is when we, we give in. We allow sin to take root in our lives. So he went and he inquired about the woman. He entertained the temptation. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David, realizing it was another man's wife, went back to his couch. So this is now the second opportunity for him to do the right thing. But he doesn't do the right thing. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him. And he lay with her. It started by getting up from his couch. It started by, by a simple stroll on his roof. A tempting moment occurs. He gives in to that temptation. Now he is now he is acting out. He has now committed adultery. He has slept with another man's wife. Verse 5, and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Verse 6, so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And then David sat Uriah down. And told him about his sin. And confessed that he had sinned against him. That, that's what could have happened. That's what should have happened. They could have had that conversation on the couch. But unfortunately that's not what happened. 
Verse 8, David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. See, rather than confessing his sin, remember it started with a lustful glance which led to adultery. Now David is trying to manipulate and lie to, to, to excuse his sin. His, his plan is that Uriah would go and, and like a soldier re- returning from the field, would go be reunited with his wife, that they would sleep together, and, that, and, that, and then Bathsheba would give birth, and there's no paternity test back then, and the problem would be solved. You see, sin comes at us from two different angles. So David initially is being controlled by lust. You, you see something, you see someone, you think, I must have it, I must possess it. So often, we sin because we lust. But the flip side of the sin coin is fear. David was initially being controlled by lust, but now he's being controlled by fear. Word can't get out. I must control this situation because he's afraid of, of the consequences. Uriah ends up sleeping on the porch with his servants. Look what he says in verse 11. Uriah said to David, The ark of Israel and Judah dwell in Booth, and my lord Joab and his servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall then I go to my house and eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. I mean, so Uriah here is standing in stark contrast to to David. I mean, Uriah is showing himself to be so noble, to be so honorable. Uriah wasn't willing to to sleep with his own wife. David seemed to have no problem with sleeping with someone else's wife. And then surely in this moment, this happened for a couple of evenings. Surely after David is seeing how honorably Uriah is behaving, now David would come clean. But he doesn't. He was motivated by lust, now he's motivated by fear. Then look at verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Uriah hand-delivered a letter that said this. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. See, we need to understand how sin erodes our character. It started with a lustful glance, then adultery, then lying and manipulation, and now David is going to murder an innocent man. He's Uriah, the Hittite. When David was running from Saul, he gathered to, together a sort of a band of marauders, warriors, and they were called David's mighty men, and Uriah was one of them. Uriah was one of David's most trusted soldiers. This wasn't a, this wasn't a strength, he knew Uriah, he fought shoulder to shoulder with Uriah. Uriah wasn't even Jewish, he's a Hittite. He left behind all of his culture and his family and everything familiar with him so that he could align himself with David. This is what is so mind-blowing. David is described as being a man after God's own heart. The same David 
who showed so much patience with his enemy, with Saul. Saul tried to kill David seven different times. He threw spears at him. He tried to arrest him. And yet David had two opportunities to get revenge against one of his enemies, and he showed patience. The same David is now murdering one of his friends. Sin erodes our character, and it all started from getting up off his... This is the scary thing. The seriousness of sin. God help us. God help me. To see that sin is not something that we, that we trifle with, that we, that we play with. Look at what it did to David. It erodes our character. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Bathsheba has no idea that Uriah's murder was planned by David. David orchestrated and manipulated the whole thing. It all seemed to work out for him. But verse 27 is the first time the Lord is mentioned. David wasn't thinking about the Lord when he, got, when he stayed home from battle. He wasn't thinking about the Lord when he got up from his couch. He wasn't thinking about the Lord when he inquired about Bathsheba. He wasn't thinking about the Lord when he committed adultery. He wasn't thinking about the Lord when he had Uriah murdered. But all the while, all that time, God was with him on the couch. He was with him on the roof. He was with him through the whole thing. And it says that this displeased the Lord. But sin erodes our care. It, it, sin is malignant. It's always, it's never inactive in us. It is always, always, always growing. It's always getting worse. So then in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him, with his children. It used to eat of his morsel, and drink from his cup, and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who had done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Loved ones, sin will erode our character. Also, sin will blind our eyes. It's unfathomable that David would not see himself in this story. He needs, eventually, Nathan is just going to come out and interpret the parable, parable for him. Jesus tells us, you know, we're, we're worried about a speck in someone else's eyes. Meanwhile, there's a plank sticking out of our face. 
When we give ourselves to sin, we are not only allowing our character to be eroded, but also allowing our eyes to be blinded. We become so accustomed to it, we don't even realize it's there. And David hears the story about someone else, and he's outraged. I mean, he even makes reference to this obscure part of case law that's found in the Old Testament, this idea of when a, when a, a, a thief steals something, they're supposed to give back four times the amount of what they, what they stole. So David, he, he deserves to give fourfold. So David knows his Bible. He's quoting uh, Exodus 22, verse 1 here. But remember Exodus 20? Not like the details of the case law, but like the Ten Commandments, David? You're splitting hairs about giving four lambs. Meanwhile, David, you broke the tenth commandment. You coveted your neighbor's wife. You, you broke the seventh commandment. You committed adultery. You broke the, the sixth commandment in committing murder. But David's eyes are blinded. And sometimes we rage against other people's sin most when we are enslaved to sin ourselves. And that's exactly what happens with David. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. And in that moment, David's eyes are opened. And he looks at what he has become. And the sins that he's committed and the bad decisions that he's made. And it's at this point that David Pens, Psalm 51. So turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 51. Have you found yourself in that place? Have you found yourself having sinned in such a way that you look at where you are and you look at where you were and you can't believe that it was you that took those steps? Have you ever looked into the mirror and just wondered, who are you and what have you done? I've been there. David's been there. And David gives us words, helps us, helps us make things right when we have made things so, so wrong. Let me read to you the first six verses. It says, have mercy. Sorry, the, I'll begin with the, with the title. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him. After he had gone into Bathsheba. So we just reviewed the context there. Now verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words. And blameless in your judgment. Behold I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Here's the first thing that we must do if we are going to repent rightly. We must be sure on taking personal responsibility. Taking personal responsibility. Notice at the end of verse 2, my transgressions. Verse, uh, my iniquity, my sin. David is taking personal responsibility for what he's 
He's calling his sin his own. And look at where David is setting his hope here. He says, have mercy on me according to, have mercy on me. It's kind of like saying, have mercy on me because. Have mercy on me because. Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. David didn't say, Lord, have mercy on me because of or according to the bravery I showed against Goliath. Have mercy on me because or according to the patience I showed to Saul. Have mercy on me in accordance to the kindness that I showed Mephibosheth. No, he says, my only hope in this situation is not the good deeds I've done. My only hope is that God is merciful, that he's abundant in mercy, and that he's abounding in steadfast love. He calls upon God's character. His, his character's been, been corrupted. It's been corroded. So his only hope now is to call on God. So when we come to God and when we take personal responsibility for our sin, we don't come and say, have mercy to me, God, according to all the time I spend serving and harvest kids in Awana, not according to the donations I put in the offering bag, not according to what a great witness I am at work. God, have mercy on me according to to your mercy and according to your steadfast love. That's David's only hope. That's our only hope in being forgiven. But if you're going to take personal responsibility for something, you need to know what that thing actually is. And David here gives us a, a three-part definition of sin. You see it at the end of verse 1, my transgression. Verse 2, my iniquity. And verse, uh, sorry, at the end of verse 2, my sin. Sin Iniquity and transgression. This is what, this is what we're, we need to take personal responsibility for. So, this is what sin is. Picture a line and you reaching to get it, but it's beyond your reach. There's an infinite gap, in fact, between how high you can reach and how high that line, that standard is. To sin means to fall short. To fail to uphold God's standard. David certainly did that, didn't he? That's what sin means. Iniquity, picture that same line, but now you've got it in your hands and you're twisting it around to serve your own purposes, to justify your, your own sin. So iniquity, it deals with corruption. It, it, it deals with 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 our character being crooked and perverse and twisting the good things that God has given to us. Sexuality and marriage, these are gifts that God had given to David, given to us. And David and we, we twist them and we distort them when we give in to that form of sin. Or any kind of sin is a twisting. And then lastly, picture a line like a boundary line in the athletic field. And transgression means stepping out of bounds, but it's, it's more intentional than that. It's, it's stepping out of bounds and daring the referee to blow the whistle. And even when the whistle is blown, to continue to run out of bounds and to make up your... It's, 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 transgression means a rebel. So when we take full responsibility for our sin, when we come before God, we are telling God, I am a failure... I am crooked and perverse, and I am a rebel. That, that's what it means to talk about sin. Now, 
we often talk in church about repenting. And the most basic definition of repenting is to turn, right? So you're going in this way, the way of sin, and then God convicts you so you turn and you start living a different way. But turning is not just the direction in our behavior. When we repent, we are looking at sin from a different perspective. We are turning. We used to see sin as something that we could manage, something that we could handle, something that's not so big a deal, something that's fun but that God won't let us do. We, that's how we look at sin. But when we repent, we turn and we see that we have sinned against a holy God that has done nothing but love us and provide for us and lead us and shepherd us. And so repentance is turning, changing our perspective towards what sin is. Verse 3, he says, I know my transgressions. He's taking responsibility. My sin is ever before me. David was unconscious of his sin a matter of hours ago. But now he can't stop thinking about it. All of the different stages along his decline, his sin is ever before him. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You see, from this perspective, before he repented, he thought, well, I definitely sinned against Uriah because he's dead. And Bathsheba and their parents and their extended family. But now David is seeing it from another angle. By no means diminishing what he did to those poor people. But seeing it that Bathsheba is not just the daughter of Eliam. She's God's daughter. Uriah was not just a mighty warrior in David's army. That's not David's army. That's God's army. That these people that David had wronged belonged to God. And that God is the ultimate one who is offended by our sin. He says, I have done what is, at the end of verse 4, and, and done what is evil in your sight. You see, he calls sin what it is. It's, it's transgression, it's iniquity, it's sin, it's evil. David doesn't say, my bad, I made a mistake, a failure in judgment, you know, a, a poor decision, a slip up. No, he says, I sinned, and it was evil. He says in verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying that there's anything uh, inherently sinful about intercourse or, or conception or childbirth or anything like that. He's just talking about the fact that of, of original sin, that this has been inherited from, from Adam going all the way back. So he says, my sin's ever before me. He's thinking about it all the time. And it goes all the way back, just the pervasiveness of his sin. Because he knows he's sinned against God. Now, in verse 6, he says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God cares about our heart. He, he wants truth in our inner being. Can, can I just tell you something just really straight up? So I, I turned 40 this summer. Everyone say, you don't look 40. But I think now, more than ever, I feel like, I, like, I think I, I'm kind of recognizing, and some of you probably already have, like, I've had a few laps around the track now. 
This isn't my first rodeo. I know how this works. And so even if those who are 39 and younger could hear me, this would be enough for you to hear. God desires truth in the inward being. And if I could speak from my experience, truth will always get there. It will always get to the inward being. God's preferred method is to go inside out. He convicts us of our sin, whether on the, whether on the, on the roof of the house looking at the woman or after committing adultery or whenever. He prefers that someone would be struck to the heart, that they would listen to the spirit, they would listen to their conscience. He prefers to work on the inside out. And be thankful when we allow him to do that. But listen, the truth always gets in the inward being. And if you won't let him do it on the inside out, he will work from the outside in. And it will humiliate you. It will destroy you. And it's not worth it. Let it happen from the inside out out. Include a trusted group of people that you can walk with and journey with because he desires truth from the inward being and God always gets what he desires. So you choose which way and just speaking from someone from experience who's chosen the wrong way multiple times choose to let him, as it says here, you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Outside in, not inside out. Take full responsibility. What does taking full responsibility look like? Well, first of all, again, we understand that we, we, we've got to make things right with God against you and you only have I sinned. But that doesn't mean that the people that we've sinned against, that we don't have to speak to them. We need to say that we're sorry. We need to apologize. We need to ask for forgiveness. We need to be patient in rebuilding trust. All of these things need to happen. And we also need to make sure that when we're having those kinds of conversations, we're not letting blame shifting seep in somewhere. David does not blame his circumstances. He doesn't blame the stress that he's under as king. He doesn't blame Bathsheba for bathing in a conspicuous location. He doesn't go back and blame his parents. You know, I've always wondered, why was I out there looking after the sheep when the other brothers were invited to, to meet Samuel? No, he's not doing any of that. He's taking responsibility. That's the first thing we can learn when we think about what we need to say when we know we've sinned. We, we say these things. Here's the second one. Seeking supernatural renewal. Seeking supernatural renewal. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David is now, he's not talking about the things that he's going to do to make things right. No, he's asking God to do some things. He knows that there must be supernatural intervention in his life in order for things to be made right. 
he uses two metaphors to talk about what he wants God to do. One is blot out. Do you see that in verse 9? Blot out my iniquities. He also used it in verse 1. Blot out my transgressions. The second one is washing. You can see that in verse 7. You can see it in verse 2. This is what we're asking God to do. The first one, blotting out, it refers to writing. And when someone in the ancient Near East was, was writing on, on parchment, papyrus, a scroll, whatever it may be, and they made an error or they wanted to remove something that was written, they would blot it out, which was either trying to remove the ink from the paper or to scratch it or to mark over it so that that word could no longer be seen. Blotting out refers to the fact that our sin is like a record and there's a list of the things that we've done. And what David is asking is that his record would be blotted out. That those words would be removed from the paper. That they would be, that they would be blotted out, crossed out. Blotting out refers, refers to the fact that we are all legally guilty for our sin. And David is asking that they would be blotted out. That the punishment that he deserves for his sin, that they would be wiped off his record. So the one blot out because we're guilty, the other one washing because we're filthy. Because we're dirty. He says, cleanse me. Go back to verse 7. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. He wants to be whiter than snow. This is what hyssop is. This is hyssop growing in a field. Get a bit of a close-up here. Hyssop is like a, it's like a brush. And David's saying, you got to scrub me. Make me clean. Also, hyssop was used by the priests in the Old Testament. They would make a brush out of hyssop, and they would dip it in blood. And when they were doing cleansing of, of people or houses or, or a sacrifice, they would dip it in blood and brush as a sign of being ceremonially clean. Remember in the Exodus, when they, when they put blood over the doorway... Read the text that they were using hyssop. And so David here is saying, I need to be cleansed. I need, I need to be cleansed with, with blood. I need to be ceremonially clean. What is that pointing ahead to? Also, he's longing to be made new. It's a supernatural renewal. He says, verse 10, create in me a clean heart. He knows his heart is dirty. And he's asking God to change and to transform his heart. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew. Do something new. Renew a right spirit in me. In verse 11, he says, cast me not away from your presence. He knows the consequences of his sin. He knows what he deserves. And then he says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. David had experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in his life, but he had also saw firsthand what happened to Saul. In 1 Samuel 16, 14, it says, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. David doesn't want that to happen. Now I've mentioned several times that the book of Psalms, it's like a script. It gives us words to say, what we need to say to make things right. But sometimes on this side of the cross... The script doesn't always fit with our particular situation. You see, when Jesus suffered and died on the cross, he took the blame for our sin. 
And he made a promise in the Gospel of John, which we're going to be studying again this fall. He said in John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you, notice this, forever. Even the spirit of truth. So the spirit stays with us forever. And so there's lots of Psalm 51 that we can say and say and mean, but, but that verse, take not your holy, that doesn't apply to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus changes everything. And he makes all the difference. You see, Jesus is like Nathan. He opens our blind eyes and he tells us, you are the man. But then after telling us that we are the man or that we are the woman who have sinned, then he stands in our place. The place of condemnation. Pontius Pilate pointed at Jesus and said, behold, the man. Before Christ went to the cross. Because he, he took our place. Jesus fulfilled the longing that David expressed to have a new heart. Jesus gives us a new heart. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. And he sends his spirit, not to come and go, but to permanently indwell us. Jesus came to deal with our guiltiness. He came to deal with our dirtiness, our filthiness on the cross. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And when we understand the beauty of the gospel, we understand verses like verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold with me a willing spirit. David knows the relationship between forgiveness and joy. Look back at verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Some of us think that part of repentance is that we sort of walk around with our head down and feeling really bad for an extended period of time. But that's not the way the Bible talks about forgiveness. That's not the way the Bible talks about repentance, that there is joy. And joy is, is something deeper than just an expression on our face or a tone in which we might speak. It's, it's the reality of knowing that you are forgiven and David longs for that, and he longs at the end of verse 12 for a willing spirit. He wants to live the right way. Then look at the beginning of verse 13. It starts with the word, then. David's now going to talk about the results of his repentance and the results of God showing him mercy. And that brings us to our third and final point, experiencing full restoration. Experiencing full restoration. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. He says, then I will teach. I mentioned already just the, the fact that I'm getting older and I've been at this task of preaching and teaching God's word for a number of years now and when I got into it, I got into it because I had experienced the forgiveness that God offers and I wanted other people to know it. And then even in my journey of pastoring and preaching and teaching, there have been other moments where I have sinned and where I have 
had to confess and where I have had to walk in repentance. And in one of those moments, one of the older saints in our church put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Ted, some people think that God calls preachers out of seminary. God doesn't call preachers out of seminary. He calls preachers out of sin. And there's something about, whether it's far in the distance or, or in, the, in the, your more recent past or a combination of the two, there's something about having God lovingly open your eyes when you've been blind to your sin and show you what sin actually is, remind you of what sin actually is, and then to restore the joy of your salvation, you want to teach other people. And that's what David wants to do here. I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. It's referring to Uriah. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Notice all the talking. He's doing teaching in verse 13 and verse 14. My tongue will sing, verse 15. Open my lips, verse 15 again. My mouth, remember it started in the heart. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit. And then from the heart, it flows to the lips. Jesus even said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He says in verse 16, For you will not delight in sacrifices, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Similar to Psalm 50, David talked about the motivation behind these sacrifices. Look at verse 18 and 19 with me. He says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Those last two verses, they sort of seem to come out of nowhere. I mean, the psalm is intensely personal. He's talking about his own sin, and it's very internal as well. You know, change my heart, but now he's talking about Zion. He's talking about the city of Jerusalem. He's even talking about the walls. And he had just said, God, you don't care about sacrifices, but now he's talking about sacrifices again. Right sacrifices. So what's going on here? Well, here's what we need to understand. We never sin in isolation. That's part of repentance, is understanding. When we're thinking about sin on our terms, we think it's only affecting us. But when we repent and see it from God's point of view, we see how our sin is affecting those around us. We never sin in a vacuum. We never sin in isolation. It is always affecting other people. And for David, obviously, he's the king, so if he's not in a good place, then he's not going to lead the country into a good place. And, and for us, we need to understand that we belong to, to a family, we belong to a church, we belong to a community. And if we allow sin to go unchecked in our lives, it will affect our family, our church, our community. So David is saying, 
Now that his heart has been transformed, that Zion's walls will be built up, the community will be stronger. Verse 19, then you will delight in right sacrifices. What are right sacrifices? Sacrifices that are made with a broken and contrite heart. That's what David is going after. Taking full responsibility, seeking supernatural renewal, and experiencing full restoration. This is this is what God has provided for us. These are the words that we need to say when we've sinned. This is how we need to think about our sin. See it from God's perspective. See how it affects those who are around us. And so what I want to do right now is I want to just take an opportunity for us to have a, a frank, private conversation with God. And so I want to ask you to bow your heads right now. And we've already seen from the example of David in 2 Samuel 11 how blinding sin can be. And David prayed in another place, Psalm 139. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. It's very possible that that someone here has been living in complete rebellion towards God and is oblivious, is unconscious of it, hasn't seen the seriousness, the severity of it, and God right now wants to show it to you. So just ask him right now, search me, O God, where am I blind? Just allow him to move in your spirit right now. Allow the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you in the way of repentance. Lord, help us. Help us to see our sin. thank you that you love us and that you want to reveal our sin to us, Lord. And God, if we haven't already done so, we right now, right now in this moment, we want to call it what it is. We want to acknowledge that we've transgressed. We're rebels. We want to acknowledge that we've fallen short of your standard. We've sinned. And we want to acknowledge that we've acted corruptly and, and depraved. We've committed iniquity. God, we ask that you would do a work of renewal and restoration in our lives. Lord God, as we come to this this launching of a new ministry here in just a matter of weeks, our 10-year anniversary as a church, changing our name to, uh, to Hope Church, Lord, all of this momentum that's happening, God, we want to be a community that is pure. Lord, you've been working in my life and exposing sin. It's been hard, Lord, but it's been good. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to do that in me. I pray that you would do that among my brothers and sisters here gathered in your name, Lord, that we would walk rightly before you, that we would repent 
of our sin. And God, that we would recognize that our sin does not happen in isolation, that we would see the way that is affecting our families, that we would see the way that is affecting even this church, Lord. God, unite us with a common purpose to know you, to love you, to seek you, Lord. We pray that we would see, Lord, revival. We pray that we would see, Lord, many come to know you in Mississauga and in Brampton and Milton and Georgetown, that we would be ones who would teach transgressors your ways and that many would turn and repent, Lord. But it begins with us. May we turn and repent. We pray these things in Jesus' name.